In a series of lawsuits filed Tuesday, the voting tech company Dominion accused right-wing networks Newsmax and One America News Network of spreading misinformation about the 2020 election by accusing Dominion of rigging the ballots in President Biden's favor via their voting machines. These lies have harmed the company, its employees, and its customers. Workers have been threatened, their offices vandalized, and the company has had to spend upwards of $600,000 on security for employees, the suit alleges. In these times of lawsuits and countersuits, libel suits are all around us. What does it take to trigger a libel suit, and what does a plaintiff have to prove in order to succeed? I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. My guest is Robert Drexel, Professor Emeritus of the Journalism and Mass Communications Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and welcome to University of the Air. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, as I said, it is all around us, seems to be even more common than ever, and I suppose that in part does have to do with the, the Internet and all these other forms of communication, all these other ways of libeling or allegedly libeling someone, but where do we stand today in terms of just the basics of libel and how it's defined and who has access to it? Sure. Some of the basics really haven't changed for uh, decades, if not if not longer, and that is uh, the basic idea is that there is a legal cause of action, a civil cause of action, a tort as we call it. Uh, called uh, defamation or libel or in some cases slander, but we'll just use the term uh, libel throughout. And uh, what someone who believes they've been libeled has to do is uh, make a case for the fact that their reputation has been harmed by uh, whatever the language is that's been used that they have been clearly identified so that someone hearing that language uh, realizes that it refers to them. Uh, And, of course, it has to be published. At least one uh, additional party has to hear or read, see the uh, defamatory material. just takes one in theory. Uh, But, of course, obviously, uh, it's usually far more than one. And um, these days, uh, for the last several decades, uh, thanks particularly to uh, a a good deal of litigation in front of the United States Supreme Court, uh, the uh, defamation has to be proved to be false uh, by the person bringing the lawsuit. And in most cases, though not all, uh, has to that person has to show some degree of blameworthiness or, as lawyers would put it, legal fault. And the degree of fault, the degree of blameworthiness, depends on whether the plaintiff is regarded as a public person or merely as a private person for purposes of the the uh, libel case. Do you have to prove as a plaintiff that uh, harm has been done in some tangible way? It used to be that you did not, that damage could simply be presumed from the fact that you had been libeled, and part of that was the idea that um, it's very difficult to show tangibly how something as intangible as a reputation has been harmed. Uh, of course, you you could prove uh, out-of-pocket loss if that were possible for you, but that's uh, difficult to do. Uh, so uh, damages used to be presumed in libel cases, but that all began to change drastically um, uh, thanks to Supreme Court decisions, particularly the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, which began to require... Uh, most plaintiffs to actually show some evidence that they'd been harmed. Is this restricted to to living people? Because I can see where you might, you know, malign somebody's uh, deceased father or grandmother or something, and they could make a case that, well, in so doing, you're damaging me? Yes, it has been confined only to living people. Uh, There is no cause of action for libel by someone who is uh, deceased, but it doesn't have to be people in the sense of a human being. It can be a business. In fact, there are many libel suits. You mentioned one with the Dominion uh, voting case that are being brought by businesses or organizations. Uh, There's one entity um, who uh, clearly cannot sue for libel, and that's the government itself. <laughs> and there and are just a few always, things said against the government. Yeah, I mean, and it didn't always used to be that case. I mean, the old concept of seditious libel, which was uh, still very much alive, 
when this country was uh, founded and, in fact, has uh, come back uh, to haunt us more than once in the days since then was the idea that uh, it could actually be a crime to uh, defame the government and, and, of course, to defame government officials as well. And indeed, the concern about the constitutionality of seditious libel is one of the things that really uh, led the Supreme Court in 1964 to decide what it did in New York Times versus Sullivan, which we will talk about a bit later. I seem to recall this case uh, from many years ago. I want to call it the Summit Hotel case, but I'm not sure that's even accurate, in which uh, a celebrity on the radio referred to this hotel as a rotten hotel. Uh-huh. And then the question arose as to, well, can you sue the radio station as well as the uh, the guest who is speaking on it? Well, the answer is, generally speaking, you can. You, you can sue the... Uh, the party who has uh, facilitated the the publication. In other words, uh, you can sue the newspaper if uh, uh, the newspaper publishes a libel that that somebody else has uh, actually stated, uh, maybe in a direct quote or something like that in a news story, maybe a columnist, whatever it might be. It used to be that uh, there was some kind of a distinction made between... um, uh, radio or audio, if you will, uh, libels and and uh, printed ones, the idea being that something said orally isn't quite as harmful because it's more ephemeral, uh, more ephemeral uh, whereas uh, something that appears in print has an enduring quality. But that distinction has for the most part disappeared. So again, the bottom line is that that in general, everybody in the whole chain of publication uh, could be held responsible. So if I said something negative about you on Facebook, uh, let's say libelous, arguably libelous, is Facebook uh, ah, subject to a libel suit? There, of course, is a huge exception and one that's very controversial uh, today in terms of uh, what policy should be. And uh, Facebook could not be sued. I could sue uh, you as the person who actually uh, stated the defamatory um, uh, material. But Facebook, thanks to something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, because it's an Internet service provider, um, uh, cannot be sued. And the reason for that, going back to its adoption back in the mid-1990s, was the idea that uh, the growth of the Internet would be drastically stunted if you could hold the service provider or um, even websites, specific websites themselves, aside from the Facebooks and and uh, uh, others uh, of that nature uh, legally responsible, they would simply close up shop because they would have so much potential liability that they couldn't uh, afford to do business. So um, who who all is um, subject to these things? I mean, we have emails, for example. Uh, email, if, if I send an email, is that considered publication? That certainly is publication. Uh, except that um, if you send it via Google, for example, Gmail, uh, Google couldn't be held responsible, but you could be held responsible as the person who actually sent the email. Um, And um, again, this is sometimes uh, controversial and uh, very controversial in some contexts these days because there are attempts uh, as we speak to try to find ways to amend Section 230 of the Uh, Communications Decency Act to uh, make it somewhat easier for people to uh, uh, sue uh, Internet service providers or interactive computer service providers, uh, as well as as the the statute says, uh, because uh, it has opened the door to just uh, an enormous amount of uh, defamatory material, privacy-invading material, and so on. Um, uh, so it remains to be seen what's going to happen. And um, similar to what I was asking about earlier, I suppose, talk shows, I mean, there's a high level of spontaneity there. They're yep. done live without, I assume, any significant delay. Yeah, and certainly, um, again, the person um, on the show, if you will, the guest 
uh, on the show uh, can be held individually responsible, but uh, there is nothing to um, uh, stop a uh, would-be plaintiff, the victim of a defamation, uh, to also sue um, whatever medium it is that um, is hosting the talk show. And in fact, uh, although we're getting ahead of the game a little bit, in the Dominion case, for example, um, Fox News, or maybe the Smart Tech case, I forget which, there's so many floating around right now, uh, one of the arguments that uh, Fox is uh, making in terms of trying to uh, protect itself from a successful defamation suit for things that people like Rudy, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell uh, have said on the air is uh, precisely that. Well, uh, gee, uh, you know, um, it, w- it was uh, a talk show. Uh, w- there's nothing we could do. Uh, we shouldn't be held responsible for that. We'll see whether that is successful. As far as uh, having a successful suit as a, as a plaintiff, <clears throat> uh, what kind of remedies uh, can a plaintiff demand? Uh, the, the remedies that a plaintiff can demand basically are all, are all monetary in nature, financial uh, in nature, different kinds of damages. Uh, compensatory damages, meaning exactly what you would think from the term compensation of some kind for the harm that's been done to your reputation, for the psychological harm that you might have suffered as a result, uh, uh, the specific financial damages that you can prove that you've um, suffered, you know, if you were a, a dentist, for example, and you could show uh, a dramatic decrease in the number of uh, patients that you've uh, had since the libel was published, perhaps you can show some out-of-pocket losses. And uh, and then there's always the possibility of uh, a jury awarding punitive damages. In other words, damages just to punish you for doing this nasty thing, this bad thing, and uh, sort of a caution to not ever consider doing this sort of thing again. And, and those can be virtually unlimited. Juries have come in with uh, awards, punitive awards in the millions of dollars. They have tended not to withstand appeal. They've been dramatically reduced on appeal, but that's what you can get. You can't force somebody to publish a retraction if they don't want to. Um, And uh, you can't force somebody, let's say, to publish something declaring that um, uh, the truth of the matter really was uh, such and such. That would be unconstitutional. So it's all a matter of damages. The truth is not not a valid... uh complaint uh, or, or it's not of it's not is it let's get to the truth yeah <laughs> the, i suppose the truth could work in the favor of either plaintiff or defendant but oh, it, absolutely i mm-hmm. suppose it would be common for the defendant to say well you know you really did this or or that which uh, sure reflects badly on you but the truth is you did it Right. If it's true, there's really no defamation. You're only entitled to the reputation you actually deserve. Um, and I, I have found over the years that often when people first start start uh, thinking about libel, they think, well, it ought to be a very straightforward thing. I mean, it's either true or it isn't true. And But uh, once you start uh, giving more thought to it, you, you start to realize, well, um, it's not necessarily easy to prove that something is true or, for that matter, that something is false. And it used to be that, uh, again, until the Supreme Court started uh, uh, changing things, it used to be that if someone sued for libel, they did not have to uh, initially prove that what was uh, published about them was false, but rather it was on the defendant in the case to establish uh, truth. Um, uh, Fortunately for defendants, and I think fortunately for all of us, there are also... Uh, any number of uh, long-standing, long-recognized defenses to libel uh, that don't uh, get us into the monkey territory about truth. Uh, For example, if you think about it, uh, the media are full of extraordinarily defamatory uh, allegations every day. Every time you read a story about the police arresting somebody and accusing them of some crime, well, obviously, that's going to be harmful to the reputation of whoever that person is. Or if someone stands up at a legislative hearing and says some vicious thing about uh, some political opponent, 
um, uh, gee, if you had to worry about whether or not you could prove it was true or not before you could demis- uh, 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 disseminate that kind of information, it would be very difficult. So we have a defense, for example, uh, that's called the fair report defense. It's recognized in virtually every state, some differences, minor relatively from one state to another, that says that um, if you are reporting something that is um, a report of the official actions of government, such as a city council or such as a court uh, hearing or such as a documents that are filed in connection with uh, uh, a court case, as long as you fairly and accurately report that information and attribute it to the official source, you can't be sued. Uh, and that's obviously extraordinarily important uh, to all of us in terms of being able to understand what's going on uh, in government. Now, I've come across this term fair comment, which uh, seems to imply you're almost, uh, you know, commenting on um, a work of art or something, mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in, a, in the context of criticism of some kind that's legitimate, even if it's a matter of opinion. How does that play into libel suits? That's also uh, a long-standing defense, uh, and it, it um, has its roots again in, in precisely the example uh, that you were describing. Uh, the idea is that um, if someone is seeking public attention for something that they've done, whether it might be a work of art, whether it might be a book, whether it's a play, whether it, whatever, anything you can think of, whether it's, whether it's uh, touting your restaurant or whatever, uh, you risk uh, that you may be criticized as well as praised for it. And so the idea is that as long as there is a factual basis underlying the opinion of the critic, in other words, the critic had better have eaten at the restaurant before uh, bitterly <laughs> criticizing the restaurant, uh, as long as there is a basis in fact underlying it, uh, an opinion is uh, not going to be subject to um, a libel action, um, which, again, is extraordinarily important because I think uh, everyone would have to agree, that's always a dangerous statement, of course, but that opinions can be just as harmful, in a sense, to people's reputations or businesses' reputations as statements of uh, fact, but we do protect opinion, and that has also, again, become important uh, in the constitutionalization, if you will, of, of uh, libel defenses that we can talk about a bit later. I've also heard uh, just very recently about the strategic lawsuits against public participation, but what does yeah. that refer to? Slap, slap <laughs> suits, as they, as they are called, yeah. Um, and that's the idea um, uh, or the problem, if you will, that there um, have been a good many libel suits over the years that have been brought seemingly to harass people. So uh, if somebody doesn't like a um, particular uh, development, let us say, that's being proposed in a city and and they're trying to stop it, uh, all of a sudden they might find themselves sued for for libel uh, by the developer. Uh, and the goal of the suit is really not to collect damages for reputation, but but uh, the goal of the suit might actually be to get the opponents to just shut up <laughs> and go away and give up. And uh, this has led uh, legislatures in a good many states, I couldn't tell you precisely how many, but a growing number of states to adopt statutes that are called anti-slap statutes. And the idea is that, um, uh, and they take slightly different approaches depending on the state, but the idea is that uh, you make it possible for a defendant in cases like that to put an end to the litigation very early on, before it goes on for very long, before it becomes expensive. Uh, and so um, the defendant will will go to court and and the lawyer will invoke the anti slap statute and again we can 't go into the details, but if the judge um, is convinced by the argument that 'll be the end of the suit hovering over all of this is the first amendment and let 's look at the impact of the First Amendment on libel when we return in a moment. This is University of the air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with my guest, Robert Drexel, and we're looking at, li- we're looking at libel 
libel law as it is in the United States today has changed over the course of time. And uh, a big factor in libel law would be the First Amendment. And uh, I think particularly of newspapers when I think of the First Amendment because, you know, the freedom of the press and the First Amendment. And yet there are libel laws against newspapers. Well, uh, we, we, I think you're right. At least those, those of us who have been around for a while think about newspapers first. But actually we should think about uh, all sorts of media. Uh, libel, of course, can, can occur in lots and lots of different contexts. So it could occur in a, in a newspaper story, of course, or an editorial or something like that. Or it could occur in a television a news broadcast or a documentary or something like that, but it can also occur in the context of a political campaign uh, with candidates um, essentially seemingly defaming each other. It can occur in advertising. Indeed, there are a good many libel suits that, that uh, may uh, result from uh, advertising. Um, although it's 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 a, a bit of a digression and uh, probably no point in going into great detail about it about here there's even such a thing uh, as as now being called in in some places veggie libel which is to say um, libel suits that are being brought on behalf of certain agricultural industries and and products uh, you know somebody says something in fact this happened to Oprah Winfrey uh, she said something on the air uh, that was not taken well by the beef industry in Texas, and she was she was sued under one of these agricultural libel uh, laws, the constitutionality of which may be highly um, questionable. Um, so there are all kinds of contexts in which it can occur, and in the Sullivan case, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, it was actually an advertisement. Uh, in this case, a political kind of advertisement, if you will, um, that led to uh, what I think it's still fair to say is the single most important libel case uh, ever decided by the United States Supreme Court. Was it was it one candidate making statements, allegedly false statements about another? There have been cases like that um, subsequent to New York Times, but in, in the case of the Sullivan case, it was an advertisement that was placed by a civil rights uh, group, um, both criticizing the uh, behavior of law enforcement and and other entities uh, in the South during the civil rights movement era, um, and so and asking in the process uh, for uh, donations uh, to assist with its efforts. And it was out of that particular advertisement or advertorial, as some people might call these things, that the Sullivan case itself emerged. But there have been other cases uh, before the Supreme Court where, indeed, uh, one candidate for office may have sued another. What was the upshot of that? Was it uh, someone on behalf of law enforcement that was suing the civil rights organization? Well, let me let me take um, uh, a step back here and sort of walk you through um, the Sullivan case itself. Um, remember that uh, particularly until the Sullivan case came along, uh, the idea was uh, that um, essentially plaintiffs had a great advantage in libel suits in general. Um, they had the advantage of not having to prove that a libel was false. That is, the defendant had the obligation to prove it was true. It wasn't necessarily required of the plaintiff to show at the outset that the libel uh, was false. Uh, remember that damages could simply be presumed. And so if indeed uh, it was determined that a, a defamatory statement had been published about the plaintiff, then um, the only question was how much money is the plaintiff going to get because damages could be presumed by the jury and the jury, be, jury could pretty much do whatever, whatever it pleased. So it was uh, an area of law that was uh, friendly to plaintiffs, which is the case in, in many countries, the UK, for example, um, uh, even, even today. And not only that, but that until the Sullivan case came along, um, 
the law simply um, created the fiction, if you will, that libelous material didn't really count as the, at all as the kind of uh, speech or press that was protected by the First Amendment. It was essentially put into a category, uh, and there have been a few other categories that the courts have established over the years that are, that are like this, but it was put into a category of speech that simply had no First Amendment protection whatsoever. It just wasn't a First Amendment issue. If you were sued for libel, good luck if you tried to claim the First Amendment as a defense. Fascinating. The Sullivan case changed that in a heartbeat, and that change alone uh, was just extraordinarily significant. This was when? This was 1964. Mm-hmm. And what had happened in the Sullivan case was uh, that the um, group, the entity that uh, uh, was responsible for the advertisement that the, that the Times ran, uh, took its advertisement to the Times advertising people, and uh, they gave it a look, and they recognized, as I recall, uh, some of the people who were uh, signatories to the ad and brought brought the ad in and so on. And so they, they uh, published the ad without investigating the accuracy of anything in the ad, um, and uh, probably didn't give it too much of a, of a thought. Well, what the ad included was a, a description of a variety of things that uh, uh, particularly law enforcement agencies in the South had been doing uh, to uh, make life miserable for civil rights uh, protesters and activists. And it included such things as uh, the authorities had uh, thrown a ring up around a particular uh, college campus, uh, that they had padlocked the uh, cafeteria, for example, uh, that they had harassed Martin Luther King by arresting him seven times, uh, that they hadn't looked into uh, um, the um, a couple of attempts to um, to bomb. Uh, I think in that, this case, I uh, can't remember every detail, but uh, uh, the Reverend King's house, and so on. And uh, some of these some of these things were were factually incorrect. Uh, the police had not technically ringed the campus. Uh, there was an allegation that a certain song was sung on the steps of the Capitol, state capitol, by protesters, but it was actually a different song. Uh, the cafeteria was not actually locked. Um, Dr. King had been arrested uh, four times, not seven times, and so on and so forth. And um, the, uh, the a guy who was the police commissioner, which is to say the elected official who was technically the head of the police department in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, who was not named at all in the ad, uh, brought a libel suit against the New York Times and also against several of the people who had signed this, uh, this advertisement, um, some, if not all, of whom didn't even realize their names had been included, as I recall. But the big lawsuit was against the Times, which circulated, by the way, only a handful of, of, uh, of copies in the state of Alabama. But, but uh, Mr. Sullivan, the commissioner, made the argument that since this advertisement um, said some uh, nasty things about uh, law enforcement uh, in Montgomery, that that was the same as identifying him. And that people looking at that ad would assume that all of these things were his responsibility. And therefore, he had been uh, defamed uh, by these falsehoods and these allegations. Uh, so he sued for libel. And uh, a jury in um, Alabama came in with a damage award of $500,000. I don't know what that is in today's terms, but it would be several million dollars without question. The Times, of course, had no defense, if you will, because could they prove truth? Well, of course they couldn't because, because there were, obviously there were some falsehoods in the ad. 
could they claim the uh, kind of defense that I talked about earlier in terms of uh, a fair and accurate report of a government proceeding of some kind? Of course not, because there was no proceeding that they were reporting on. Could they claim that it was opinion? Well, the problem is there were factual mistakes, and that was the basis of, of the uh, lawsuit that Sullivan brought. So they were in a, in a difficult position. Uh, so on appeal which they first lost at the level of the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, on appeal, they uh, embarked on the strategy of um, trying to get the United States Supreme Court to remove libel from the category of material not protected at all by the First Amendment and um, to actually save them from liability in this lawsuit. And incidentally, there were a number of other lawsuits pending in other jurisdictions in the South at the time that were very much like, like this one. But that's what, that's what the uh, Times uh, had to do, was uh, convince the Supreme Court that it would uh, be a good idea to essentially turn the law of libel um, as it currently existed, turn it upside down. That's a heavy and, lift. And it was an extremely heavy lift. Uh, and the lift succeeded. And uh, the Supreme Court unanimously uh, came down on the side of the New York Times and in a variety of ways uh, really significantly changed the law of libel. Um, one of the things that the court... Uh, emphasized was that um, what what really was happening here, if you permitted Sullivan to bring this uh, libel suit successfully, was essentially you were using the civil law of libel uh, as a backdoor way of actually permitting actions for sedition. Because if if you um, think about it for a bit, you could pretty easily make the argument that what this lawsuit was about was somebody criticizing the government and, of course, criticizing a government official, um, but really it was about criticizing the government. And the Supreme Court actually went so far as to say in passing in the Sullivan case that um, even though the Sedition Act of 1798 was never tested in the courts we assume now that it would have been unconstitutional. Uh, and so um, they, they, they really uh, bought into this analogy to sedition that the Times was uh, suggesting. Uh, it, and it bothered them, and one of the reasons they saw it as a sort of sedition case in disguise was the fact that Sullivan himself had not been identified in the um, advertisement at so all. So it was criticizing the government, not that individual. Yes, yes. So um, they, they really leaned on that analogy, and they also uh, made the point that um, it's extremely important in, in a system, a representative democracy uh, uh, like, like we have, for people to feel comfortable speaking out on public issues, criticizing public officials, without having to worry constantly that they could be sued for libel. And um, uh, if, if there weren't strong protection for, uh, for citizens, for media, uh, then uh, there would be this thing called uh, the chilling effect on speech. People would be reluctant to speak out, and, and that would be a very bad thing. And so they, they had this famous language about debate on public issues needs to be robust, wide open, uh, and, and so we need to do something, something to the law of libel to make sure that we don't have this chilling effect. And uh, what they did was to decide that henceforth, if a public official uh, brings a libel suit for criticism of that person's um, public actions, official actions, uh, that public official is going to have to essentially prove not only that the libel is false, that the statement is false, but, and here's where the, the real rub comes in for plaintiffs or would-be plaintiffs, you have to prove that whoever published that libel in their own minds, knew 
that it was false. That there was some malice. That uh, Yes, and unfortunately, they used the term actual malice for this idea that you had to show that uh, so it was published knowing that it was false or with reckless disregard for the truth, which later they said means you seriously doubted the truth. Also um, tough to prove, I would Very, think. very hard to prove. How do you get inside Someone's somebody's mind. head? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a really difficult thing. And, and it's become controversial. It has been controversial over time. And it's getting a lot more attention again right now. Has this, has this made it too hard uh, for public officials and others to, uh, to win libel suits? Um, but that's what, that's what you had to do after the uh, Sullivan case, and, and essentially that's what the Supreme Court intended uh, to be the case. So, um, uh, so many ways in which it, it changed the law of libel, but, but again, the most important was that it made it very, very difficult, not impossible, but very, very difficult for public officials to win libel suits uh, that involved any kind of material involving their character or their their uh, official um, actions. Speaking of official actions and uh, public actions, let's look at a couple of notable, fairly recent cases when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with Robert Drexel, and we're looking at libel law, and we've determined that a big case in 1964, New York Times versus Sullivan, expanded the First Amendment defense in libel cases. We mentioned early on, too, very much at the beginning, about this case with the Dominion voting machine. Now, Dominion is, is not a government official, but I guess as a corporation that is an individual that gives it the right to sue for libel if somebody maligns their uh, honesty in their use of their voting machines? Yep. And uh, and the question also is um, how is it that an entity like Dominion, um, a business, if you will, uh, can um, get involved in a libel case that, that ends up involving the First Amendment? And um, to, to answer that, in, in a sense, we have to take a step back to the, to the aftermath of uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, as you might guess, as soon as you get a new Supreme Court precedent as dramatic as Sullivan, um, uh, as you might guess, lawyers are going to start pushing the boundaries and saying, well, this was a, this was a great idea uh, in the Sullivan case to uh, provide a First Amendment defense to people who, who uh, sue, but um, uh, who, are, who are sued. But, um, you know, uh, there must be other contexts in which it would be just as sensible to do that. And so we had a, a whole series of cases um, reaching the Supreme Court over the next several years in which the court said, you know, it's, uh, we're not ju- just going to confine this idea of requiring uh, plaintiffs to prove um, actual malice, uh, reckless disregard for the truth, publication of annoying falsehood. We're not just going to confine that to cases being brought by uh, public officials. Um, we're going to expand it to cases that involve um, public figures more generally. Um, and uh, there are lots of people who are, are so prominent and so powerful in society, for example, that um, it would make sense to make, um, make those kinds of people also prove this thing called actual malice. Um, in a libel case. And so they did. They expanded it to include cases being brought by um, uh, public figures, not just public officials. Uh, And then they took uh, an even uh, further step, ultimately, and um, said that actually we're going to make these requirements binding on anybody who's... um, libeled in the context of any matter of public interest, whether you're a private figure, whether you're a public figure, whether you're the president of the United States, it makes no difference. But at that point, the justices started to disagree with each other. 
And uh, that was not, as we call it, a majority opinion, where the, where we had a majority of the justices agreeing on who wins and why, but but it was uh, um, controversial even within the in the court itself. And so ultimately, they they came to the conclusion that it should be easier for people who are not public figures or officials. It should be easier for them to sue. They, there should still be a First Amendment interest taken into account, but but henceforth, if states want to, they can uh, permit um, private individuals who are libeled to win if they can just prove negligence, not actual malice. And the difference Much of negligence easier. is simply that uh, negligence, it doesn't matter what you're thinking. What matters is whether a jury concludes that um, you weren't acting the way a reasonable person would have acted. Like I suppose, for example, from a journalistic standpoint, if you just single source a statement rather than checking multiple sources to yes, verify it. exactly. Whereas in the Sullivan case, uh, for example, this, the um, Supreme Court says, well, the failure in to, in to, in to investigate, that's not the same thing as actual malice. Or refusing to retract, that's not the same thing as actual malice. In, with negligence as the standard, that might be evidence of negligence. Your, 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 your uh, failure to investigate uh, journalistically, that might be negligence. So it'll be easier. They, they, they tinkered with the law in a variety of other important ways, too, in terms of damages. They said no more presumed damages, even for private individuals. Um, but um, in any case, um, they, they made it a little bit easier for private individuals to sue. So to get back to this Dominion case, for example, uh, here we have um, a corporate entity suing, which has always been the case. Businesses can, of course, sue. But one question, of course, would be, um, you know, are they, are they public figures? Uh, are they going to have to prove actual malice or are they private figures? And, of course, uh, they would probably like to be regarded as private figures, <laughs> as uh, private figures, but um, I, that's probably not going to happen. Well, I would think but, in the Dominion case, if you're uh, in the news as providing the voting machines and a controversial presidential yeah. election, it would be very hard to prove the case that you're private Entity. It 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 would and it probably will be in this case. But again, one of the one of the problems and complexities that the Supreme Court has created in in its treatment of libel in a variety of contexts is as soon as you say that there's going to be a difference in treatment between public people and private people, you've got to define what you mean by a public person. And that is an enormous struggle <laughs> in and of itself uh, in many cases. Sure. I, I mean, I can see, for example, if you were on a call-in show once, you could arguably be still a private person. But if you appeared on, say, once a month for a couple of years, you obviously are a public person. And so we're splitting hairs somewhere in between there. And it may or may not be obvious. I mean, what the, what the courts have tended to do, including the Supreme Court, is to say, well, with the, with the kind of person who might just become involved in something once or twice, the question is going to be, have they voluntarily injected themselves into some kind of a public controversy in order to influence its outcome? Um, and um, that may or may not apply, uh, even with somebody who's been on a talk show or something. Um, uh, it's all going to depend. It's all going to depend on the context and the facts in the specific case. Or there may be some people who it would seem unfair to regard as private individuals because they've played a really central role in some controversy, public controversy, even though they may have done nothing to, to purposely enter the controversy to try to influence sure. its outcome. And uh, so there's a whole category of involuntary public figure that the courts have wrestled with in many cases. So that issue itself becomes a huge one. So you've got the issue of, of is it a private person? Is it a public person? How do you decide? Is it a false statement of fact? Is it a statement of opinion? If it's opinion, it's not actionable. If it's fact, it is. Uh, is it negligent? Is there evidence of actual malice? 
It's a nightmare, frankly. <laughs> and it can take years. I mean, a libel suit can go on for five, six, seven years. And at that point, you have to say to yourself, what's the point of this? If somebody's originally suing because they feel something false about them has been disseminated, it seems like that's the last thing in the world that the courts are ever going to address. I suppose there would be a little bit of irony in it, too, if the case itself creates such publicity that uh, the plaintiff is constantly in the news in this negative light. That's exactly right, and that's something that tactically any would-be plaintiff has to consider. You know, maybe I'm just going to bring more attention to this. And uh, and you combine that with the old the old saw about the truth seldom catches up with the lie, and uh, and then maybe you become a bit more sympathetic to some plaintiffs. Did Sarah Palin sue the New York Times? Sarah Palin did sue the New York Times. She's still suing the New York Times. Uh, the case is still not resolved. She lost initially, uh, and that got reversed by an appeals court, and now it's back uh, in court again. And this is a case that involves a New York Times editorial that uh, essentially um, said that it had been shown that uh, Sarah Palin's political advertising had triggered the shooting of uh, Representative uh, Giffords, I believe. Um, Gabby Giffords? Gabby Giffords. And that was uh, false. And um, the Times uh, retracted after, after it was uh, pointed out. Uh, but um, um, the case is, is uh, still pending and may well go to trial. Wasn't there a case also connected with that documentary, Making a Murderer? Making a murderer. In fact, we just had a decision within the last uh, couple of weeks in court in Wisconsin where uh, one of the deputy sheriffs uh, brought a libel suit against uh, Netflix uh, for uh, making a murderer. Uh, and uh, this was the case involving the, the documentary involving the Stephen Avery uh, case. And uh, the deputy is saying that um, that he was uh, defamed in this documentary uh, because uh, it uh, gave the impression that he had planted evidence and uh, engaged in in uh, totally uh, uh, what illegal uh, conduct in terms of framing Avery essentially for the for the murder. And uh, Netflix had uh, made a variety of motions to get the case tossed out, uh, but those were rejected at uh, this level. And so that case conceivably may yet go to trial as well. Uh, the de- the uh, deputy in this case, I believe, is, is being regarded as a public official or public figure. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's going to be uh, uh, an argument uh, in the case or not. There's also a case out there with a great name. I don't know what the outcome will be or even what the tenets of it are, but Pink Slime. Ah, uh, yes, the Pink Slime case. This was the case that was brought against, um, a libel case brought against uh, um, ABC uh, after uh, its reporting on this uh, this uh, additive. I can never remember the exact name of it, but uh, Pink Slime was its uh, nickname. It was The technical name is... Lean, finely textured beef. And it's, it is beef. It is indeed beef. It's trimmings from things that otherwise can't be used. And it's frequently added to particularly ground beef. And um, it got the nickname Pink Slime ABC. I don't believe gave it that nickname, but kept referring, it, uh, referring to it that way. And the, uh, the company Beef Products Incorporated... Uh, that was particularly singled out for uh, making and using this uh, this product, um, sued ABC uh, claiming that uh, they had uh, falsely, uh, in their reporting, left the impression that this uh, pink slime uh, wasn't beef, that it wasn't nutritious, that it was dangerous in some way or another, that people shouldn't eat it. Uh, and uh, their allegation was that as a result of the stories 
they ended up having to close plants in several states, lay off several hundred workers. Uh, it was devastating for their business. The case actually went to trial in South Dakota, in a small town in uh, South Dakota. And uh, sometime, several days, several weeks into the trial, um, all of a sudden uh, ABC settled the case for what was later reported as $177 million. So um, we'll never know what a a jury would have actually decided. (laughs) And ABC Disney has never explained why they would be willing to pay out that kind of money. Uh, But... uh, that's what happened. How's the Supreme Court looking at this whole Sullivan case and this expansion of uh, First Amendment defense? The Supreme Court seemingly lost interest in libel cases uh, quite a few years ago. So it's been a long while since the court has wrestled with a uh, a garden variety kind of uh, libel case. But a very interesting thing has been happening Um, relatively recently, and that is we have not just one but two Supreme Court justices who have filed uh, opinions um, in the context that that you don't terribly often see extensive opinions filed, and that is in the process of the Supreme Court deciding whether or not to accept a case And uh, the two justices are Justice Thomas, he was the first to do this, but now also Justice Gorsuch has done this. They have filed uh, opinions basically saying, we need to reconsider even New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, basically says uh, things have changed dramatically when it comes to the media environment uh, in the years since New York Times versus Sullivan, and, and we, should, we should take a case in which we stop and think through whether the very rationale of Sullivan makes sense any longer in an environment in, in which we have uh, enormous public access to uh, media that can reach literally the entire globe, um, and he's not suggesting what what, if any, action that should be, but but he's concerned about it, and he's worried, at least by what he expresses, that uh, the Sullivan case may kind of be backfiring now, and rather than encouraging more speech, it may be rewarding bad speech and rewarding the most reckless of speakers and so on. Justice Thomas's approach is slightly different, uh, but predictable in his case. He's an originalist. Uh, who will always argue that the Supreme Court should try to figure out what the Constitution meant, what the framers meant at the point at which the Constitution, or in this case the First Amendment, was adopted, and then um, uh, apply those standards. And so his argument is, hey, libel didn't have any First Amendment protection. Uh, Nobody thought that it was protected by the Constitution at the time when the First Amendment was adopted. So the whole premise of New York Times versus Sullivan is uh, is based not on law at all, but it's simply a a policy preference that has been expressed by the Supreme Court over the years, and and we should revisit that. So um, uh, there's a lot of nervousness, I think, in some quarters among uh, media worried about whether in the right case, Sullivan itself could be reconsidered, but we shall see. Robert Drexel, it's been a pleasure. It's been uh, very informative and thought-provoking. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. I'm Norman Gilliland. I hope you can join me next time for University of the Air.